0: Welcome to Dharma, real conversations about what really matters.
1: Welcome to the Dharma podcast. My name is Saim Joyce. And in this series, we are speaking with different folks about their personal journeys of resilience and growth. We'll also be exploring the important topic of workplace mental health. In our first podcast, Dean Yates talks to my friend Tara Lau. Tara is a full time firefighter in Sydney, Australia. She helps run the Psychological Wellbeing Programme for Fire and Rescue New South Wales. She's trained in suicide prevention and mental health first aid. Tara is extremely passionate about mental health. She is now halfway through a PhD in which she is researching how firefighters cope with the tragic suicides they encounter on the job. When someone suicides, fire and rescue usually get called. Tara wants to understand how firefighters make sense of it all. Tara's family history has shaped who she is today. Born in London, some of Tara's earliest memories are of the crippling mental illness her father has suffered all his life. When she was eight, Tara's mother was diagnosed with cancer and died five years later. At the time, Tara turned to her sensitive 15-year-old brother Adam for support. Adam was grieving silently, pouring his thoughts into a series of diaries. Four years after their mother died, in his first semester at Oxford University, Adam took his own life. Tara coped by keeping busy, by travelling, by never stopping, but her family trauma cut up with her. Tara spent many years trying to understand this trauma, building her resilience, finding meaning in her own life. That culminated in 2015 with the publication of her powerful memoir, Standing on My Brother's Shoulders, Making Peace with Grief and Suicide. In this podcast, Tara shares her valuable insights on building personal resilience in the face of adversity and trauma. The Mindamra podcast shares stories of personal resilience and mental health. If you are impacted by any of the stories shared in the podcast, please consider reaching out for support. In Australia, you may choose to call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you are living outside of Australia, please visit Befrienders.org for support services in your country.
0: We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their ancestors, elders and Aboriginal leaders, past, present and emerging. Hi, Tara. Thank you so much for joining me.
2: Hi, Dean. It's my pleasure.
0: There is much well-deserved admiration these days for the job firefighters do, whether it's in the city or the country. Tell me, what's it like being a firefighter?
2: You know, I think it's such a unique work environment. But, you know, for me, after being in the job for 15 years, it becomes normal and it is really, you know, your normal. And it's only when you go to other work environments that you realise that it's a very, very different type of job to do. And I remember very clearly there was one instance quite a few years ago where we had a unit fire and we saved a rabbit from death by smoke inhalation. Uh, and I was on the fourth floor balcony and I had to climb over the balcony to get into the cage of the ladders truck. And I remember sort of as I straddled it thinking, this is a funny job. And, um, and that's always stuck with me. Um, but, you know, it's a really exciting and every day is different. Um, and you can be eating dinner and 30 seconds later you're jumping in a truck and, uh, you know, driving down a main street uh, to some sort of emergency, and whether that's, you know, a house fire or a car accident or a rescue or a hazmat. Um, And, you know, it's good. It's good to feel it's a very tangible job in that what you do, you can really see the results straight away. And I really love that. Um, And you're really working in a team environment. And I think what's very different is that you are really relying on your team and the people you work with for your life. And that changes your relationship quite significantly. Um, And, you know, in that respect, it's also a very, very different type of job.
0: In your very moving memoir, Standing on My Brother's Shoulders, you write about a computer generated careers program at Edinburgh University. Sounds like you were destined to be a firefighter. What was that all about?
2: Yeah, I mean, that was a really defining thing, although I didn't realise it at the time. I was in my final year at university in Edinburgh and I was doing a degree in physiology and I was thinking, what am I going to do with this degree in physiology when I finish? And so I went, there was computers were just sort of coming in then. And I did a careers program, a computer generated careers program. And after I'd answered all these questions, it asked me, it listed the occupations that it thought I would be most suited to. And uh, number one was fireman because uh, it was <laughs> 1994. Um, and number two was a physiotherapist. Um, and I think, you know, had I not done that, I'd, maybe I wouldn't have thought about being a firefighter. It wouldn't have been something that had come to me but it certainly planted the seed uh, to get me thinking along those lines. And um, and I think that's really, you know, it wasn't until quite a few years later that I actually joined or, or applied to join the fire brigade. Um, and people often say to me, you know, I must be one of the only people that actually listens to those computer-generated um, tests. But, you know, it was, for me it's been spot on, really.
0: Wow, amazing. Tara, can you take us back to your teenage years and describe... What happened uh, from your mum's cancer to Adam taking his own life? And, of course, your dad was struggling with mental illness.
2: Yeah, so I think now I look back, I realise how difficult it was at the time. But really, you know, that was the only life I knew. And I remember my mum being diagnosed with with cancer when I was about eight. Um, And I thought, you know, I just thought that she was ill, but she would be fine. And I remember having a mastectomy and having chemotherapy and going to visit her at the hospital. Um, And I think, you know, around about that same time, my father was also very ill with depression and later on with bipolar disorder. And so I remember going to visit him in the hospital as well, in a psychiatric hospital. And having that real, like, I know how to help mum and I could bake cakes and clean the house, but I didn't really understand my father's illness and I didn't know how to help him and I found it quite frightening. And when my father died, um, he suffered, when my mother died, sorry, um my father had quite a significant psychotic episode. And again, that was really terrifying for me. And he was then admitted to hospital for a year. So I really didn't have any parent around. We used to have dinner at our neighbor's house. And I'd really desperately hoped that our grief would somehow unite us, but, uh, but it really didn't. Um, and I remember the house feeling so quiet and lonely. And I was only 13 years old at the time. And, you know, my mom, missing my mom so desperately and, and realizing that my father just couldn't be there. Um, And so I turned to my brother and he really, we had a really unique special bond and he made me feel safe and I felt like he protected me and he cradled some of the pain that I was holding really. And I didn't really see what was happening to him um, at the time. I think I was probably too young. It was only maybe in the last year of his life that I started to feel that something was wrong with him um, and that he wasn't happy. Um, And then when I was 17, he took his own life. and, And really, that was the point at which my life really shattered around me um, and everything that I knew and loved had been taken from me. And I was incredibly scared and I started having panic attacks and I felt so isolated because as a 17-year-old child, really, nobody, your friends don't understand. um, And I didn't understand. Um, And I certainly really became haunted by the question why. You know, what had I done to deserve this? I was incredibly ashamed of myself. I thought I wasn't good enough. I felt incredibly helpless, and and really that whole experience just changed me, um, and it changed who I was at a very deep and core
0: level. What was it like going to a psych hospital at that as a teenager? Um, it must have been a very daunting experience.
2: It really was, and and it's you know it's so different to visiting somebody in 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 a normal in a hospital as you would usually do, you know, for a physical illness, and. I didn't understand it and I kept thinking, but, but my dad, I didn't understand all the things that were going on and, and, you know, I kept thinking, well, my dad's not crazy, but why is he in this, you know, all the kind of stigma-driven words that, that, that that's all you know at that time, thinking he's not crazy and, and why have they, you know, taken all his razor blades away from him and all of these sorts of things and, um, that I didn't understand and, and just really not wanting to go and, and feeling very frightened.
0: A year after Adam's death, You went to Zimbabwe to live and and work in rural areas. You were building schools. Um, How did that trip help you?
2: You know, it was so incredibly pivotal for me. Um, And I had taken part in a selection weekend before my brother had died to go on, on this expedition. And I was so frightened when I remember standing at the airport being so terrified and thinking, what if I have a panic attack while I'm away and I didn't know anybody but I think, through that process and undertaking community work um, in Africa, and really living, going back to the real simplicity and the basics of life, and um digging foundations of a school with my hands um, was really grounding and going on treks carrying all my food with me on my back and digging for water, and seeing all these people who really had absolutely nothing but seemed so. Incredibly happy and grounded. Um, and I think because I didn't know anybody there as well, I was no longer, they didn't, people didn't define me by my experiences as they did in England. And they just took me for who I was. And so I think it was really transformative for me. And it was a real turning point in showing me and demonstrating to me that I could be happy again and that there was that possibility of that for the future.
0: How long did you spend in Zimbabwe altogether?
2: Uh, it was three months mm. in total.
0: If we were to fast forward a little bit and go to the mid-1990s, you're filling your days with the sort of sports that would, uh, I think, make most people nervous, including myself. Uh, You're in New Zealand. You're skydiving, whitewater rafting, bungee jumping, ice climbing. But in a tiny wooden hut on a mountain trail, you wake up in the middle of the night. What happened that night?
2: I remember I was in New Zealand walking the Rootbone Track. um, And normally walking and hiking is my happy place in nature. But I remember waking up in the middle of this, in the middle of the night, um, with this kind of immense building feeling of terror. Um, And it was completely quiet and dark around me and my chest tightened and I started sweating and I felt like I couldn't breathe. And I felt as if I wasn't really in the world. And for me, that was the most frightening thing because it felt like I was going crazy. And that was really one of my deepest fears that I would become like my father had. and because I was essentially in what, what would normally be my happy place. Um, and it was one of the worst panic attacks I'd ever had. Um, and all the more frightening because I couldn't really understand why at that time. And it was only later that I realised that I was on my way back from Australia after being here for a year, um, back to the UK, and which really went, meant for me confronting all the pain and all the grief and all the memories that lay in England that I had kind of conveniently left behind for a year.
0: What do you think that, that episode was trying to tell you, that you had to confront a lot of this pain and then that was why you had that panic attack?
2: Yeah, I mean, I now really believe and see that I think there is a, so much panic attacks. There's a lot of unconscious stuff in there and they are a sign that there's, you know, in the spiritual world, um, it's called, a, a, you know, a crisis really and a, of your sp- spiritual crisis. And I think that for me, it really was that for me. There was a lot of un unconscious things going on inside me that I didn't want to confront that I tried to push away and push down and push aside. And I think those things will always come up in some way or another. And for me, that came up in the form of a panic attack
1: Mm. um,
2: and and needing to address a lot of the things that lay within me and a lot of the grief and the pain and the hurt and the uh, lack of understanding that I had around what had happened.
0: The fact that it happened in such a beautiful place, right? A place that you felt so relaxed in, right? There's mountain trails and you're, do you think that, that also suggests something about the setting, the fact that it, it happens in a place where you you are relaxed and so your mind is at sort of should be at ease, right? You should be at some sort of peace. But does that do you think that made you more susceptible to these thoughts because you were you weren't on the you weren't on the go mentally?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. And I think in some way it created space for that to come up there was space because I a lot of the ways that I coped was by just constantly running and moving and never stopping and I think you know in some ways you know it just yeah it allowed space for the, for the unconscious stuff to come up.
0: You, you reached a bit of a turning point at the age of uh, 32 you'd been living in Sydney for some years uh, working as a physiotherapist at a Sydney hospital you decide to see a psychologist and in your memoir you write and I quote It was as if I was having my first dose of chemotherapy. I felt nauseous, but I was at last fighting the cancer within me. I had found the malignant tumour that was strangling my soul. Can you talk a bit about why it was like that?
2: Yeah, I think for so long I'd been trying to ignore this kind of thing inside of me um, and this deep wound or this tumour really, that's what it felt like. Um, That was really insidiously destroying me in the same way I guess you know as a cancer does a tumorous growth does and it was as if the universe kept sort of showing me and uh, shoving things in front of me to say you know look you need to stop you need to look at what's going on inside you Um, and you know that came up in many ways whether it was suicides that came into my life and I'd really tried very hard to push away any notion of any talk of suicide in my life I never wanted to hear it I'd got my ears but it kept coming to me and it, it Through work as a firefighter and and a friend that attempted suicide and then through failed relationships as well. And it was like everything said to me, look inside, you need to look at your pain. And I think that was the cancerous tumour for me. And when I finally went to see a psychologist, I just vomited up everything that was inside of me. And, and I think that's the nausea that I was talking about. And, you know, just like chemotherapy doesn't really make you better quickly. In fact, it makes you feel worse first. And I think certainly seeing a psychologist and starting to address and work through some of that um, deep-seated pain and grief, um, you know, it did make me feel worse initially. Um, but I was at least addressing the issue itself um you know as you do when you actually seek treatment um for cancer um and i started really peeling back the layers to get to the root of my issues and it was incredibly painful and it was a bit like trying to fight cancer you know i wasn't trying to fight cancer with band-aids
0: anymore and yeah, that was what really um, were the what were really were those issues that you were you were that you you got to the bottom of if you like
2: you know, there were so many, it was so layered and so it's taken me many, many years to peel back all the layers of those issues. But I really do believe at the core of that human, human needs and human fears are, you know, I don't belong. Um, and I certainly felt that for a long time. I'm not good enough because I hadn't been good enough to save my brother or my mother or, or even my father, um, you know, and I'm not lovable. And I think, you know, when you look at those three really core, core issues, they are the foundations, but there were many, many things layered above that that I had to get through to kind of get to those core issues and start to really address those that, you know, I'm enough as I am, that I do belong and, you know, that somebody can love me and I am lovable.
0: What I found really interesting, Tara, where you you wrote about this was that you said that you had to do the work and you seem to emphasize that. I was just wondering if you could, you know, can you elaborate a little bit on that?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, in in our culture, really in our society is that we all want this epiphany that things will suddenly get better and they'll be fixed and that we, you know, we don't really need to necessarily put a lot of work and effort into it, you know, but I really found that 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 isn't the case and that you really do need to do the work. And, you know, when you go, you can go to a psychologist every week, but if all you do is that time that you spend with them and you download and and they, you know, um, maybe facilitate conversation, but the more work that you do around that, that to really experience that personal growth. Um, and they're just facilitators. And I used to go every time I went to my therapist, I would go and I'd walk on the afterwards and I'd take a notebook with me and I'd write and I'd just write about what had come up during that time. And I did all the other things as well, like trying to eat well, um, you know, trying to exercise. I tried to meditate. Um, you know, I, I looked at all lots of different alternative strategies in terms of using acupuncture and reflexology. And, and they all played their little little part, I think, in, in get, making the ground stable enough so that I could do the really hard psychological work that I needed to do with the psychologist. And I think that's, you know, and that took a lot of work and energy. And, you know, well, when I look back, though, I go, that was the best investment I could ever have made because it was an investment in myself to be the person that I am now. And, and, and everything that is part of my life now is a result of that work that I did over many years.
0: Toward the end of your memoir, you, you really get to what seems to be the heart of this, your you're inner conflict, and, and you write about directing all of your anger in your life to everyone except Adam for the past 20 years no one could live up to Adam, you wrote. You were safe and so was Adam as long as nothing challenged what you described as a fairy tale. Then you challenged that fairy tale. I know this might be a bit difficult, but can you read a few you, few passages for me? You know the ones?
2: Yeah, sure. I'm standing on the side of my mountain. I've stopped walking, stopped my heavy trudge. I notice the weight upon me and the darkness of my cloak. I stand in the silence of nature with the soft wind upon my face. I speak with my brother. Did I let you down, Ad? Did I? In the silence, he speaks to me softly and with tenderness. No, you didn't let me down. I let you down. I look at him and he at me and for the first time I acknowledge softly. Yes, you did. We are standing, looking at each other, two souls touching each other in the field of nature. What should I do, dear brother? Help me. Tell me. Go forward without me, my beautiful sister. Let me go. Let me lie here. You don't need me anymore. Go live your life as you want it to be. Embrace it. Have passion. Be free of me.
0: Thanks for reading that, Tara. It's such a powerful passage in your memoir. Can, can you Are you able to describe just what was happening there? Was this part of your process of... Of letting go was it were you communicating with Adam in some way?
2: Yeah I think most definitely I was you know it was an in, a really intuitive thing um, it wasn't something that was thought it was something that was really organically just happened um, and that piece of writing really just flowed out of me and it was really an acknowledgement that I needed to let go of him in some way and perhaps just redefine my relationship with him and that I had held on to him so incredibly tightly um, and held him on this pedestal in my head, but that that wasn't actually very good for me, um, and it was hurting me, and it was so acutely painful to let go, and even reading that now, I still feel that pain. You know, when somebody dies suddenly, it's like this horrendous tearing inside of you that rips you apart, and you want to cling on in any way that you can, and it took me a long time to get to the point that I could even start to let go, and it really did feel like a tearing insight inside of me, um, but it also has allowed me to be me and to be lighter, and, and I think that was so incredibly important for me in moving forward and, and allowing me to be the person I wanted to be um, rather than living only for him.
0: How has the, how has the writing itself helped you? It, it seems like it's been very therapeutic for you you're know, writing your memoir.
2: Yeah, it has been. I mean, I think the process of writing my life story, down was, you know, incredibly transformative for me. Um, and, you know, I didn't, everything that I wrote, I didn't write with the intention that it would become a book. And I think that was really important for me and how it helped me. And And the process of writing really allowed me to view things from a different perspective. And I think when you write, you have to make sense of, what happened in words and sentences and paragraphs and that process helps you or helped me to make sense of my life. And and that was really, really important for me, you know, especially while I was doing, um, you know, seeing a psychologist at the same time. Um, and I think, you know, when we when you write, you use a different part of your brain to when you speak or when you think and you never have a chance to put all those memories from years ago into, into a place altogether and, and writing allowed me to do that and it certainly gave me a level of self-understanding and self-compassion that I couldn't possibly have had had I not taken the time to to write.
0: Uh, The the final words of your memoir which I think are absolutely profound are, I no longer see what life took from me, I see what it gave me. What does that mean?
2: I think for so long, all I could see was everything that I'd lost. Um, and when I looked at photographs, I could see that there were only three of us and there weren't five of us anymore. And I only saw the pain and the darkness. Um, and it was all I knew. And I was incredibly sad. You know, people would say to me stuff like, smile, it might never happen. You know, just walking along the street or, um, you know, you look so sad, even <laughs> when I didn't think that I was sad. Um, and it was really my default emotion. That's all I knew was was to be sad. I, I had I didn't even know what joy felt like. And now I really don't see it has been a real shift, um, you know, over time that I don't see the world like that anymore. Um, I acknowledge the pain. um, And I think, you know, when I look at my life as a tapestry, I now can see the darker colors in that tapestry, um, but I can also see the colors and I can see how the colors, you know, are brighter because of the darkness in it. Um, And I see what what those things have given me really. Um, And I'm no longer defined by those experiences. I see how lucky I am to, you know, live where I live, to have a great job, to have these incredible people in my life and to be given the body that I have been given. And, you know, how I can really use all my experiences to make a difference in the world. And it is only because of those experiences that I can make the difference that I hope to in the future and that I hope that I do in some way now. Um, So I think that's really what I mean. And I see... Yeah, I see what life gave gave me and I'm so grateful for that and I guess the whole lens with which I view the world has shifted from a point of darkness to a point of light.
0: Speaking of that experience you've got, what advice do you have for young firefighters, first responders who are just starting out in their careers?
2: You know, I think it's so important to embrace the great things about the job um, but also being aware when you start the job that there are... You know, it's a very, very different job to other jobs, normal jobs, if you like, and there will be challenges that you will face um, and so that you really need to be proactive about your psychological, your spiritual and your physical health and, and really work on building a toolkit for yourself of, of coping mechanisms. things like, you know, mindfulness, meditation, yoga, healthy food, exercise, strong relationships, um, so that you can really thrive through your job and, and what it brings to you but rather than be you know, so impacted by some of the challenges that you'll face. Um, And then you can really hopefully have a long and fulfilling career, Um, but also really ensuring that you are not completely defined by that career, which can be difficult when you're wearing a uniform um, so that you have a good, you know, life outside of that job. And also I would say never underestimate the power of sleep. (laughs) <laughs> um, how important it is um, and that you need to find a way to, to make sure you get enough of it.
0: And, and given everything that you've gone through in your life, Tara, everything you've overcome and accomplished, what advice would you share to your younger self if you ever had that opportunity?
2: I would, I think the, the first thing would be just never to be afraid to go and get help. And if the one thing that I would have done would be to go and get help sooner um, and to stick with it, find somebody that you really, that I really connected with, that I could trust, um, and find a good team of people around yourself or myself um, to support me and really investing in, in those people and finding as much compassion for myself um, as I had for other people. And I think that we can all do that. Um, and I wouldn't waste energy worrying about what other people think so much. And, and try to be proud of who who you are um, and, and not ashamed of everything that you're not. Um, and, and above all, to be kind to yourself um, and really try to love yourself truly and deeply.
0: Tara, thank you so much for, for joining us today. And, and I understand that your, your memoir is being re-released uh, in the coming months. What's new in the book?
2: Yeah, it is. Um, it's um, so I've written a new preface because I'm now um, doing research in the in the area of suicide. So I really wanted to write a bit about why mine and my brother's story is important in today's world and the context within which it sits for for the greater world and for other people. So I've written a preface um, to that and also a new postscript um, because people often say to me, "Well, oh, what's happened in your life since you know?" Because really, I finished writing the bulk of it probably in. Um, around about 2010. So, um, you know, a lot of my life has changed since then. And so um, I wrote a postscript to sort of updating on, you know, things that have happened in my life since then. Um, And i also wrote a whole new section on tools for post-traumatic growth. Um, And perhaps, you know, trying to provide people with some insight into things that they can do, you know, if they have experienced really difficult times in their life to help them to grow through that experience rather than, you know, fall into illness.
0: Well, that's great, Tara. I thought it was an absolutely powerful book, uh, very poignant, and, and I learned a lot from it. So I really look forward to the re-release. Thanks again for joining us.
2: Thank you so much, Dean.
0: Thank you for joining us on the Dharma podcast. We invite you to discover even more with the Mindama e-learning program. Dharma is an award-winning program being used by thousands of workers as they take on some of the world's most challenging roles. Learn more about your brain unwind with relaxing guided mindfulness exercises and discover simple practical skills you can use whenever the going gets tough find out more at mindama.com purchase online or better still ask your boss about bringing mindama into your workplace